Um, I believe God started dealing with me about this service uh, the last couple days, and um, I want to go to the Word of God. If you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter number 14, uh, I'm going to read a very familiar passage of Scripture, and uh, I feel that this message, I, now the praise team had no idea what I was preaching, and I was fussing with God and fighting with God. I want something a little more fiery. I want something a little, uh, you know, I want to I want to go in there and, and dazzle the Lord. That's what I want to do. I just want to dazzle and um, but I feel like God gave me something specific for this time for our church and, and really for all of us. Amen. Uh, Matthew chapter 14, verse number 22. Uh, I'm going to begin to read. It's uh, a familiar story. Uh, we heard it in Sunday school, and I'm going to talk about it a little bit today. Matthew 14, verse 22 says uh, in the English Standard Version, Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land. Listen to this. It was beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. The King James Version says that there was a contrary wind. And the wind is beating on the boat. And they are rocking to and fro in the middle of the storm. And the next verse says that in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cry out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, It is I. Take heart. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, this is the part we all love. Peter answered him, bold Peter, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter gets out of the boat and he's walking on the water. Now listen, Peter is the only man who has ever done this. Now Jesus is a man, but he's God in flesh. Peter's the only man who's ever done this. Look at me, Ma. <laughs> I'm walking on water. Peter thought, and we can call it faith, we can call it a lot of things, but Peter thought in that moment, if he can do it, then he can enable me to do it. And so Peter jumps out of the boat into the water and came to Jesus. So it wasn't just two steps from the boat. He, he came all the way to Jesus. And Jesus uh, is there waiting on him, but when he's a few steps from Jesus, the Bible says, when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him. Listen to this saying, truly you are the Son of God. Nobody patted Peter on the back. Can you believe it? Nobody said, Peter, did you see what you did out there? But when Jesus came into the boat out of the storm, they came away with a singular revelation. And it caused them to worship truly, Jesus, you are the Son of God. A parallel passage says it this way, What manner of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? Today I want to preach to you for the next few moments, what do you see in the storm. Would you bow your heads and pray, Lord, I just pray your anointing would fill this place. God, we need a lifting of the eyes. God, a lifting of the hearts. God, 
in the middle of all of the circumstances going on around us, God, there's some things that we need to see. And so we pray that you would open up our eyes today in the name of Jesus. And everybody said amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Matthew 14 takes place right after the 5,000 people are fed. Where, uh, we know the story, the fishes and the, the loaves, and they break it, and 5,000 people are fed. And at the end of this story is where our text jumps in as Jesus sends his disciples away, dismisses the crowd, and goes into the mountain to pray. And he sends them out on a boat to the other side of the sea to meet up with them at some later date, some later time. But it was in those few hours of, of separation as the disciples sailed across the sea that a storm developed in their life. And I want to just pause here and say, doesn't it always seem like uh, the storms come when God doesn't feel near? It, it feels like there's maybe a little bit of separation and, and we were doing good and then we missed a few services, and, and then corona hit, and then we had quarantine in place, and that's when the storms came for them too, is when they started feeling the, the separation. And the, the Bible says that they were no short jog from the shore, but they were a long way off. In fact, the language indicates that they were about three miles away from shore, nearly halfway across an eight-mile body of water, and all of a sudden, in the middle of the sea, at the worst possible location, the wind gets contrary. At the worst possible place, the wind starts to blow, and the scripture says the wind was against them. All they could do at this time, these experienced sailors knew, was hunker down and hope for the best. How many of you have been doing that? I mean, really, that's, that's what we've been doing, is we've been hunkering down and hoping for the best. I told my wife yesterday, okay, officially, I have cabin fever. I'm sick of being at this house. I'm sick of there not being anything to do. And, and, and this was the disciples. They, they're just hunkering down and hoping for the best because they knew from experience that they were at the mercy of the sea because you can't always change circumstances. You can't always wish it away or, or just decide to ignore it. And so the wind is against them, and they aren't making much headway. It's the perfect description of the year that we're in right now. The Bible says it's the fourth watch of the night between 3 and 6 a.m., and the storm is blowing when Jesus comes walking on the water. And the disciples look out, and they, they see this figure moving across the face of the water. The winds were whipping by. Waves are crashing. But there he is in the midst of the storm. He appears walking three miles from shore. Some people historically have said, well, maybe Jesus was walking on a sandbar. Sorry, Charlie. Is, he was three miles out in the middle of a storm. Winds and waves are threatening their very existence. And along comes Jesus. Another passage, a parallel passage, says he made as though he would have passed them by. Just strolling by. 
unaffected by the storm, unmoved by the storm, unchanged by the storm. The storm was dangerous to them, but to him it seemed to have no impact on this mysterious figure gliding across the surface of the water. The winds are blowing but he just stays where he's at. He's unaffected by the conditions around him. The disciples see him walking on the waves in the middle of the storm, and they are terrified. You know, we like to think that when spiritual things happen, we'll recognize them as spiritual, but these guys are terrified. They yell out, it's a ghost! You ever felt like that moment of breaking where things are bad, and then you get another word of bad news? It's like, we got winds, we got waves, and now we got a ghost on our hands. Who are you going to call? Nobody, because they're three miles from shore. Ghostbusters can't come. <laughs> Who are you going to call? We got a serious problem on our hands. This must be the night God ordained for all of us to die, right? Be, they're, they're in the middle of the, the storm, and this mysterious figure comes, and they think it's a ghost, and they cry aloud and are terrified, and Jesus speaks to them in the middle of the storm. I just, I just want to pause here and say it's easy not to recognize God when your world becomes a mess. This is a man they had walked with every day of their life. This is a man that they had spent time with. They had watched him do miracles. But here he comes and they don't recognize him because of the conditions around him. God looks different in a storm. God looks different here. Because we like to see him when he's breaking bread and provision and, and passing out miracles. We like to see him when he's opening blind eyes and, and when he's raising the dead back. That's how we like to see him. But he's almost unrecognizable when life is overcoming you and you don't know what to do. And they, he, he says to them, take heart. It is I. Be not afraid. A storm that was stopping their progress had no effect on Jesus, no effect on him. And if they had realized what they were seeing, they would have stopped fearing the storm and started trusting the one that the storm could not touch. If they, if they really understood, they would, have, they would have seen it differently. They wouldn't have been so scared and so worried about what was going to happen. And so Peter gets brave and he says, well, if it's really you, God, command me to come walk on the water and, and I'll come. And Jesus says, come on. And Peter gets out of the boat to walk on the water. Peter begins to do something incredible. He's walking where no man has walked before. He's looking at Jesus and he's doing it. He's making it. He's overcoming it. But then the Bible says as he gets nearer to Jesus, Peter remembers where he's at. And he sees all the evidence of what's happening around him come crashing back in. And he sees the wind and the waves and starts immediately to sink. The thing that he had victory over now has victory over him. The thing that he had under his feet was about to get over his head. You ever felt that way? 
You got it whipped. You got the world by the tail, the, the world on a string. Everything's going good. Everything's working out. You're overcoming. You're making it. You're doing good. And the rug gets pulled out, and you start seeing how impossible your situation is. And you start thinking about how tall the waves are. And you start being reminded by people in your life and voices in your life, all the things that are wrong in the situation and how slim of a chance. I can't tell you how many people, there are ministers and pastors on ventilators and they're, they're throwing out percentages, 5% for this one and 15% for that one. And listen, when you get that kind of news, it's easy to lose sight of the Savior in the storm. When you get that kind of news, it's easy to see the wind and the waves and to start to sink because it seems so much bigger than you. And so Peter starts to go down. And I love this. As he goes down, he screams out, Lord, save me. You tough Peter. World on a string is now... Realizing that he can't walk on the waters that Jesus can walk on. That it's not in his strength. It's not in his power. It's not in his ability. It's not in his ingenuity. It's, it's not within him to be able to do what Jesus was doing. There's only one that can save and it's Jesus. And as soon as Peter loses his vision of that unmoved, unaffected God, that God who is bigger and badder and better than the situation at hand, as soon as he loses focus on that, Peter realizes how truly futile his efforts are. And Peter sinks. Save me, Lord. I wonder if the apostles made fun of him. <laughs> you were walking. You were like, ah, save me. You know, much later after the seriousness had worn out. But we can relate to the story because we've all been there, amen? Anybody with me this morning? I know I'm going a little slower, but is anybody with me? We've all been there. We've all been there doing good, overcoming, things coming together. It begins to look like it's all going to be okay. And then we notice how slim the odds are and how difficult the issue and how bad the diagnosis is. And, and, and we, we start to see the storm around us. It starts to seem too strong and our spirit starts sinking and our worship grows weaker. And I want to tell you why today. It's because our vision is broken. When the storms of life seem too big, it's because our vision is broken. When the storms seem like we can never make it through and our faith is shaken, it's because our vision is broken. And the reason I came here today is I feel like God sent me to try to help in some small way to fix somebody's vision. Because what you are seeing in the storm is undermining your faith. And you've broken vision. You have a broken understanding that in the middle of your storm there is a God that is not affected by what you're going through. Peter starts sinking when he sees the winds and the waves. And it's easy to be distracted in our faith by circumstances. 
It's easy to let what is going on around us impact what is happening within us. And it only happens because we have a broken vision. We started seeing circumstances loom larger than the God that we serve. And we start doubting his plan. We start doubting his promises. And we start doubting his purpose. Is it? Am I preaching to anybody in this house? I feel like the Spirit is talking to somebody. You know, 2020 has been something else. Can I get an amen? We never saw it coming, did we? I saw sermons. I, I listened to a lot of sermons online. This is a year of blessing. The year of breakthrough. No, it's the year of broken down. <laughs> That's how we feel, isn't it? 2020, we never saw it coming. Everything was going fine until the wheels came off. 2020 was supposed to be the year of vision. It was supposed to be the best year we've ever had. You know, churches have been planning for this for a long time because 2020 and vision, how they correlate. They had 2020 vision back in 2005. We got a vision for 2020. They didn't see this coming, honey. Because none of us did. We started the year with high hopes and then the storm came blowing in. God shipped us off the shore of January and into February and into March. And we thought, this is all good. We're in God's plan. And then the storm started blowing. The winds and the waves this year are boisterous. But I came to tell you today that the storm that is affecting us has not impacted God at all. Because he is standing in the storm. He is walking on the water. All of the chaos and turmoil around us has not changed who God is. Or what he's doing in this world. Nothing has caught him by surprise. Listen, we've had to cancel services. We've had to cancel plans. Wave your hand if you had to cancel a vacation. We canceled vacations. We canceled all kind of stuff. We canceled stuff we don't even have to cancel just because we're sad. We just got so much in the habit, we just keep doing it, you know. Sorry, I can't make it. Got to sit on the couch a little more. Some of y'all at home, y'all hear me in the Holy Ghost. <laughs> it's canceling. But listen, it hasn't canceled God's plans. His plans remain the same. His purpose is still intact. And listen, God is not in a panic. I heard a preacher say this, and I'm stealing it today. God doesn't drive an ambulance. He doesn't see something happen and say, oh, my God, i got to go save my church. Corona has hit. Corona has hit. Everybody to their stations. Angels going down poles, you know. Get the fire hose. We got stuff to put out. No, that's not. God doesn't drive an ambulance. God is, he didn't, this didn't catch him by surprise. He doesn't feel the desperate need to come rescue us because a situation has caused us to question something. God saw this coming long before it ever came. God doesn't drive an ambulance. There's nothing in your life that he did not see coming. Listen, he planned for this. He made provision for this. And he is bigger than this. And I just want to take a moment to remind you that God is stronger than the storm. His promise still stands. His purpose still remains. His power still works. The world may pass away. And it will. The heavens and the earth may fade and they will. The moon and the stars could 
fall from their place, he says, but my word is steadfast and sure because I am still God. Dear Christian, wake up. The storm is bad, but it hasn't done anything to God. It hasn't done anything to God. It scared us. It's frightened us. It's humbled us. It's done a lot to us. But God remains the same in the middle of the storm. He's still God. He's still on the throne. He is still at the center of it all. He's still working all things for his good. He is still God. Can anybody say amen today? And so I want to transition in the last half of this message into another passage of scripture that I heard this week and I decided that I could not get through another Sunday without preaching it because it's something we desperately need to hear. There are four things that we need to see and look, y'all know I'm long-winded. Y'all know I struggle. I've I've worked hard on trying to preach 30, 35 minutes so I'm just going to try to brush over them. Y'all don't judge me if it's too shallow, okay? But there are four things we need to see in the middle of this storm. Listen, Paul in a Roman, Romans chapter 11 catches a momentary glimpse of God's superior nature. After 11 chapters of writing and dealing with deep theology, detailing man's fallen state and God's work of redemption, he transitions from theology to doxology as, as he transitions out of writing how Israel fell and how God redeemed the Gentiles but he did it through the fall of Israel and that through uh, the Gentiles God would one day redeem uh, Israel again and he's, he's writing about all this complicated stuff look you know the Bible a book of the Bible is tough when Peter writes about Paul and he says his writings are hard to be understood and easy to be twisted And Paul is dealing with all of this difficult stuff. And and it's as if in the middle of seeing how God has weaved the the message of salvation through the the messed up history of humanity. uh, Paul catches a glimpse in the middle of that. Because the Gentiles who had been far are now near. The Jews had been closer now far. But God hasn't abandoned his covenant to the Jews. And and Paul sees it all. Some of you are scrambled as, as Paul must have been. Because he's, he's writing under inspiration and walking through these things. And, and he sees how Israel made a mess of their covenant status. And yet through it all, God committed remain, uh, remained committed to saving mankind. And he comes away from all of that with this vision of how great God is, even in the mess. You see, we, miss, we make the mistake of minimizing God. And making him a reactionary God that is supposed to serve our needs. But that isn't what Paul sees. He sees a God whose plan and purposes still stand in spite of the shifting loyalties of people. I heard a prophecy this week by a pastor in Texas, one of our pastors, that said the Lord told him during this time, the strong will grow stronger and the weak will grow weaker. And I believe that. But listen, even if we all quit, God is still God. He's still God. And Paul sees this. And he comes away with this vision. In spite of the fickle faith of Israel. And the long history of them looking elsewhere. 
His promise stands to them. His character remains the same. He's unmoved by current conditions. And listen to what Paul, Paul sees that and he starts singing in the middle of a theological diatribe. He transitions from talking theology to singing praise. And he says in Romans eleven thirty three, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. See, we read this. How inscrutable are his ways. And we don't realize that this is a hymn. It's a song. And Paul starts to sing. And he says, who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid for? From him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. Paul sees four things that we need to see today in the middle of the storm. First is he sees God's transcendent wealth. Oh, the depth of the riches. Somebody say, God is rich. God is rich, y'all. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and all who dwell therein. Somebody say, it all belongs to God. Paul looks at all of the mess of humanity and how sinful our state. And he says, you know what? Oh, the depth of the riches of God. God is rich. He has everything. The Bible says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. How many of you ever heard that? I used to hear that as a kid. And I'm like, what does God need cows for? What does that mean to me? In case you need a steak, God's your man. See, what we, what we miss is that cattle was a, whoever owned the cattle was the source of economy in that day. And what the scripture is saying is that God is not rich like we're rich. See, we're rich, we, you know, we use our talents, right? We use our abilities. We don't have the ability to create wealth. We are not the source of income. Uh, that's not us. We, we depend on an economy around us, and we have what we have because of where we live and exist and, and what we were exposed to. And there are a thousand different influences that came into play in order for us to have the things that we have. So the richest person you know is, is, is not even close to rich like God is. Because, listen, there was nothing until God said something. In Genesis 1, he spoke and creation comes into existence and keeps expanding from that single utterance. Let there be. And so the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything belongs to God because everything came from God. And the storm doesn't change that. God owns the boat. He owns the sea. He owns the wind and the way. God owns everything. It's nothing that he does not own. I love the way Deuteronomy 10, 14 say, well, that's pretty rich, you know. Like Bill Gates, no, it's not Bill Gates rich because Bill Gates had to use finite materials in order to, to well, he didn't even make it. He stole the computer idea or bought it from somebody and became a millionaire. He, he used the resources at his disposal, but not God. Not God. God created it all. You see, I can use my talents and my abilities. I, I may be a great artist, but I can't create a new color. I may be a, a, a great author, but I'm not making up new letters, am I? I'm not doing that because I, everything that I have is not transcendent, but God's wealth is transcendent. Listen to Deuteronomy 10, 14. Behold, the Lord, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with it and all that is 
in it. Everything. Not just down here. But heaven belongs to God. And guess what? There's another heaven above that. And that belongs to God. Paul said that he went into the third heaven. Don't know where that's at? Listen, I studied, I looked in the concordance even. It doesn't say where it's at. But God owns it. Far beyond what I can see, what I can discern, what I can understand. God's wealth is that deep. Paul peers over into the great canyon of God's wealth. And he says there is nothing that God needs that he does not have. There's nothing there. And so look, look, the, the Abraham Kuyper said this, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. And so look, th- th- if we can see the transcendent depth of his riches, then you can trust the unending depth of his provision, that he has everything that you need in this moment and in this time to get through corona, to get through an economic downturn, to get through your sickness, to get through your struggle. God has what you need. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. This is the God that fed a traveling band of three million and didn't even strain himself to do it. Y'all ever fed family when they came over for a week? Like, whew, my brother, I hope they don't watch this. His boys can eat. We ordered 70 wings, y'all. We didn't have none left. 70 wings. Between like five or six people, those boys ate and ate and ate and ate. And God takes three million people, moves them through a desert where they have no food or water, no clothing, nothing. And he provides it. Why? Because the depth of the riches of God is enough for you and for me. It's enough. His wealth is transcendent. And it's not just what he has. It's what he knows. Somebody hear me. I'm I'm hastening on. It's what he knows. His wisdom and knowledge are as vast and as expansive as what he has created. There is not a single letter in a single word, in a single language, in a single paragraph of any line that's ever been written that God does not know intimately. There is nothing that has been written or thought or experienced or done that God does not know. God knows it all. Oh, the depth of his riches and his knowledge. You know the difference between knowledge and wisdom? Knowledge is knowing a thing and wisdom is knowing what to do with it. So not only does God know everything, but he knows exactly what to do with the information. Listen, here is our problem. I I grabbed the thickest book that I could find out of my office. Some of y'all were worried. I said, look at that book he's got. Is he fixing to preach? (laughs) Page one, the beginning. If I just let, Shelly, if I just let you read two words in this book, two words, and then ask you to review this book and its arguments. This is a book on apologetics, New Evidence That Demands a Verdict, great book by Josh McDowell. It's full, chock full of apologetic information, details. What if I, what if I let you read page one? This is the two words you get to read. And then I want you to review this book for me. Would you have any clue? Of whether it was a good book or a bad book or how it came out? Absolutely not. 
But that's what we do with God. Because Paul moves from this fact that God knows everything and he says this, he says, how inscrutable are God's ways. You see, our problem is a storm comes and we start questioning and charging God foolishly. God, how could you let this happen? Didn't you know that I served you? Didn't you know that I was on the greeter team last week? Didn't you know that I put an extra five in the offering, God? How could you do that? Just being real. And we see our circumstance. Let's, let's get real. Cancer comes and we say, God, how can you let this happen? I don't understand your ways, God. But Paul looks into the depth of the rich and knowledge and wisdom of God and he says his ways are inscrutable and his judgment is past finding out. God knows all of this and he's not judging it by the two words that you got to read. He knows the beginning from the ending. He knows intimately every moment that you live, that you breathe. And not just you, but he knows every strand of DNA and, and, and every hair numbered on, on the head of every one of your ancestors and their fifth cousin's ancestors and everybody. He knows it all. And so Paul says, how can we judge God? How can we foolishly charge God? God, you must not love me because I'm going through this. God's ways are inscrutable. And I knew this would be a different message. But this is our problem. is the wind starts blowing and we start saying, God, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Paul goes on to say, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? What we do is we huddle up and, and, and we talk to a few people. And yeah, God shouldn't let that happen. Don't you think? You know, God, can you believe all this stuff happened in our country? You believe all this stuff happening? You believe Corona and, and, and people getting sick and dying and preachers and missionaries and all these people suffering? Can you? We get together and we, God, we've been thinking. We got a couple suggestions for you. Paul says, no, 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 no. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? God knows so much and has so much that we cannot question his ways. We just have to see him as the immovable God who does not drive an ambulance, who does not get in a panic, but we've got to learn to trust the outcome because God knows the beginning from the end and his ways are inscrutable. Listen, if you want to get humbled, start questioning God. Because this is what Job did. Job was innocent. The Bible said he was blameless. He didn't deserve anything that happened to him. And God allowed everything to be taken out of his life. And so Job innocently asked the question, what is the Lord doing? What is, what is happening? For 35 chapters, him and his buddies are discussing, what is God doing here? Is he judging? What has he done? Has he forgotten about me? All of this. And finally, God speaks up to Job. And he says to Job, listen to this. He says, Job... Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? He says, do you deign to counsel me, Job? Because you don't know nothing. And God, for chapters on in, goes through questions. Job, he said, I dress for action like a man because I'm going to ask you some questions. And I want you to make some things known to me. I, I want, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me how you understand. How did I do it, Job? How did, I, how did I call something out of nothing? And Job, oh, oh, oh. that's what he does for chapters on in. I got nothing, God. I got nothing. Because God's ways are inscrutable. Job, can you comprehend my creation? No, you can't. He goes on and he moves into another category. Can you care for my creation? Job, can you feed 
the, uh, the, the beasts of the air, uh, or the fowl of the air and the beasts of the field? Can you even feed them? Can you make sure that they live? No, you can't. You didn't make it. You can't sustain it. And then he says, you can't even control my creation because there's Leviathan and Behemoth and all of these things that you cannot do. They're bigger than you. But guess what, Job? They're not bigger than me. Who is this that darkens counsel with knowledge? See, God knows everything, beginning from end. And if we can see his infinite knowledge, we can trust his eternal plan. Paul was beaten and bruised. His life was rough, y'all. He was beaten and bruised time and time again for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the reason Paul kept going is because he understood that there is an eternal ending. That Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. And if we want to get to the finish line, what does he say? He said we should lay aside every weight and sin which does so easily beset us and do what? Fix our eyes on Jesus. He's saying what do you see in the storm. Do you see a God that's bigger than the Rona? Do you see God is bigger than your problem? That God is bigger than your circumstance? God, is He knows enough. He, he has an eternal plan. And listen to this. I'm wrapping up. He is perfectly self-sufficient. Peter jumps out of the boat and tries to run on the water. I'm going to help you out, Jesus. Nope. Peter sinks. There's only one that can stand in the storm. And the only reason Peter could stand in the storm is because that one was there with him. But listen, God is perfectly self-sufficient. Who has given a gift to God that, to him that he might be repaid? He cannot be repaid. Listen, there's nothing that you can give God that will ever put him in your debt. Nothing. Nothing that you can offer God that would ever put him in your debt. Some of you have heard of the band called Sixpence None the Richer. Whatever your opinion on their music, I bet you didn't know where their name came from. It comes from an illustration out of a C.S. Lewis book where C.S. Lewis tells about a British child who went to his father and asked for sixpence so that he could buy him a birthday gift. And he takes that sixpence and he goes and he purchases his dad a birthday birthday gift and he brings it back to the dad look what I've given you I can relate to this because I did this it was Mother's Day one time and I asked my mom could I have some money and she, she wouldn't give it to me so I was like mom I was like 10 I'm trying to buy you a Mother's Day gift she gave it to me and I ran down the street because it was a garage sale and I bought my mom some of the junkiest stuff that you have ever seen. Some lamp, uh, some outside lamps that these people had taken off their house. They were old and outdated and ugly. And, and I brought a pile of junk back to my mom with her $10. And I said, Mom, look what I got you. She was $10 none the richer. Because even what I had to give came from her in the first place. And this is what Paul sees. He says there's nothing that we can give God that would ever put him in our debt. Nothing that we could ever offer God. Nothing. And so what does that mean? That means that it's purely by his grace that I can make it through the storm. You see, some of you have been trying so hard to get through 
this storm of life and, and you've been trying to figure out your way like Peter you scrambled up on those waters and let's do this thing Jesus but when Peter was sinking he realized the shortness of his own self-sufficiency and he realized there is nothing that I can do here Lord you have to save me now you have to fix me now. I've tried to fix myself. I've tried to overcome my weaknesses. I've tried to be a better Christian. I've taken notes at church. I show up to the prayer room. I do all the things that I'm supposed to do. But listen, there is nothing, nothing that you can ever do that will put God in your debt. Who has given him a gift that he must repay? Look, the cross is all the evidence that you need for the goodness of God in the middle of a storm. He laid everything he had down knowing that you could never repay it. He gave himself, robed himself in flesh, and laid his life on the line. Knowing that your best effort is not good enough. I know this is different, but I feel the Holy Ghost here right now. Because some of us need to wake up and realize that, that we're not going to get through this storm by trying harder and doing better and all of that and making God love us enough to come to us in our storm. There's nothing we could ever do to repay Him. Nothing. He just loves us enough to show up in the middle of the thing that we can't handle. He loves us that much. I want to tell you this as we all stand. I want to tell you this. That there is no future version of yourself that God loves more than he loves you right now. There's no future version of yourself that will somehow earn the affection and the action of God. You can be in the middle of this mess and be struggling in your spirit. Falling away from your faith. And while you were yet a sinner, Christ still died for you. Who? can repay the Lord. Nobody. And listen, here's the final thing that you need to see in the middle of the storm. As winds and waves crash around us and we don't know what's happening, you need to understand that it's really not about you anyways. It's really not about you. Listen, the final verse. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Somebody say all things. To Him, listen to this, to Him be glory forever and ever. What, what I'm trying to do is dig beneath all of this stuff. God's love, God's grace, and God's blessing is ultimately not about me. It's not about me. It's about revealing Himself to this world as the God that he is. Why did Jesus come walking in the storm? If it was about the convenience and comfort of the disciples, he could have caused them never to go through it in the first place. But he revealed himself in the storm so that we, 2,000 years later, could look upon a God that is not affected, that is not impacted, that is not troubled by our troubles, that is not in a panic, that is not afraid. He's a God that stands in the storm. And if we can look to Him, we can trust the outcome. And listen, when we see that it's really all for His glory anyways, listen, 
the right response then is to worship because when they saw that Peter couldn't do it and Peter didn't get any glory when they saw all of that and Jesus stepped into the boat they said what manner of man is this who is this guy they truly worshipped him because they saw God for who he is come on give the Lord a hand clap of praise listen there's a freedom in it not being about me is I can trust that he's got a place in his plan for me. And it might not be comfortable, but God is working all things. Somebody say all things. All things for his glory and for our good. And God knows enough, he has enough, and he's big enough to do that. He can take your misery and and he can weave it together with your sorrow and all of your struggles. and, And he can weave it together in his plan. And you can come out the better. You can come out trusting in the unchanging hand of God. And so today, I'm just asking you to lift your eyes up. Stop looking at the wind and the waves stop looking at the storm stop struggling in your faith because there is a God in the midst of this storm would you give the Lord a hand clap of praise I'm going to pray we're going to end a little differently today but I want you to pull your family grab we're just going to have a little family altar call just a time of prayer just a moment and we're just going to ask God to remind us of who he is. Would you pray? Would you grab a family member? Don't, don't, don't break the rules, but grab somebody close and say, Lord, we need to see you. God, this life has become overwhelming in so many ways. And there's so many things that we do not have answers to. God, there's so many questions that we're still asking. And and Lord, we don't know the outcome and we don't have the knowledge. But God, we're not here today to scrutinize your goodness or to abandon our faith in your will. But Lord, we just ask you to help us to see you for who you are so that we can trust you in the storm, so that we can trust you in our trials so that we can trust you when things don't go according to our plans. For Lord, you are bigger than it all. You are greater than it all. And you are unmoved and unaffected by it all. And we give you praise. Come on, in the end of this service, can we just give God some praise? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Come on, the storm can't shake me because my God is bigger. May God Bless you. We're going to have online service this Wednesday. We ask you to join us. But how many of you will walk out of here and just raise your hand and say, I'm walking in faith in my God. May God bless you. We be dismissed today in Jesus' name.